Welcome all to this guest episode of the History of England, an episode I've entitled Gracia and Henry V's Proto-Royal Navy. My name is Brandon Hubner, and I'm normally at the helm of the Maritime History Podcast. Today, however, David has asked me to put together a guest episode for this podcast, so here I am, happy to oblige. I greatly appreciate the invitation, David, and I hope that anyone who listens to this episode will feel the same way by the time we reach the end. Another thing I hope to accomplish by the episode's conclusion is to have adequately explained the reason for my inclusion of the prefix proto in our title here today. As I've been writing this episode, David has been working his way through the details of Henry V's tenure as king. Those episodes have covered the bulk of what was going on during Henry's reign, so I hope you don't mind if during the episode I make reference to events during his reign without necessarily going into a great amount of detail. Still, though, I have attempted to give at least some context to the things that we'll be discussing here today, and hopefully the episode will be a fitting complement to David's treatment of Henry V as king. Today, we're going to focus on Henry's involvement with the resurgence of the English naval forces, albeit the brief resurgence that it ultimately turned out to be. That's the episode in a nutshell, anyway. And speaking of nutshells, I think that the story of the Gracia gives us a good look into the dynamics of naval and maritime thinking during the latter part of Henry V's reign. But that comes in the latter part of our story here today. For now, let's go ahead and see what Henry was up to during his early years as king. I think I'm on safe ground saying that Henry's most oft-remembered success was his victory at Agincourt. However, while Agincourt is deserving of the fame it receives, victory there was only the first step in Henry's campaign to retake the whole of Normandy. After 1415, England's forward progress was heavily dependent on their being able to maintain control of the sea, something that Henry had seen coming and had been preparing for since before his accession to the throne. In 1410, when Henry temporarily held the reins while his father lay ill, the royal fleet comprised a grand total of two ships. Upon his accession in 1413, he'd already grown the fleet to a total of six ships. And then following Agincourt, Henry kicked the royal shipbuilding campaign into high gear. The plans and preparations for this resurgent royal fleet had been percolating since before Agincourt, but in medieval England, shipbuilding was an expensive and time-consuming endeavor. That being said, it wasn't much of a hindrance to Henry's aim of enlarging the fleet. Rather, Henry only paid for the full construction of four great ships, the massive clinker-built carracks that we'll discuss later on, in addition to eight smaller ballingers, or barges. The rest of Henry's war fleet was made up of repurposed prize vessels, and the huge bulk of ships that were used for transport or commerce were merchant vessels, privately owned and impressed by the crown. 
Before we move on to look at just how Henry utilized his fleet and expanded it over the course of his reign, I was pleasantly surprised to learn during the course of my research that even during this pre-Age of Sail period, the crown supplemented its warship fleet with either privateers or pirates. I say either because the crown saw them as privateers, but English merchants were sometimes on the receiving end of the privateers' privateering, so some Englishmen saw them more as pirates, and the French certainly did. The most well-known of these early privateers were John Hawley the Elder and Younger, a father and son pair who each served as mayor of Dartmouth and as multiple-time MPs for the same town. While they retained honor in their localities, both Hollies gained reputations as being of a piratical persuasion, each in their turn. The elder Holly, who died in 1408, had amassed a fortune thanks to both his mercantile ventures and his capture of prize vessels during his exploits at sea. This dual source of income for Holly the Elder gives us a good point at which to discuss the realities of life in an English coastal town during the Hundred Years' War. The presence of war forced the inhabitants of coastal towns to defend their shipping and shores at their own expense, especially in the times before Henry V came to power and began placing a more heavy emphasis on naval defense. These coastal towns made a fair amount of money through maritime trade, but when the war drums were rumbling, and even when they were barely audible for that matter, the people of towns like Dartmouth took to defending their interests by going on the offensive. Well, some of the people did, anyhow. Howley the Elder gained a reputation for descending upon French ships and seizing their cargoes. In 1379, he was licensed to go to sea for one year at his own expense to attack and destroy the king's enemies. Essentially, Holly was an early privateer, preying on enemy shipping to supplement his own income, sometimes at the behest of the king, and other times not. These privateers slash pirates were integral to England's naval defense, so their more dubious exploits were largely overlooked by the law. Hawley's biography in the History of Parliament says that his greatest exploit took place in October 1403, when under color of commission, he and Thomas Norton of Bristol, commanding a fleet from Bristol, Plymouth, and Dartmouth, seized seven carracks laden with rich cargoes from Spain and Italy. These they illegally retained for three years and longer. One of the merchants who suffered loss on this occasion, Richard Garner of Piedmont, had much cause for complaint, for not only did Holly take his cargo of wine, worth 398 pounds, but two years later also seized one of olive oil, worth 210 pounds, shipped in his name. Such incidents stand recorded because the robberies were committed upon the vessels of friendly powers, and so called for inquiry. With the trading ships of France, there was constant, though less well-documented, warfare. Holly the Younger seems to have picked up right where his father left off, gaining a reputation for piratical activity against foreign ships, 
even as the crown appreciated his contribution to the naval defense. Holly the Younger ended up getting in a bit more trouble than his father, though. He seems to have lacked his father's good judgment, for he made it a practice to prey upon merchant ships regardless of their country of origin. His relationship with Henry V was also somewhat tenuous. In 1411, the Prince of Wales named him as Undersheriff of Cornwall, yet in 1413, when Henry became king, he sent orders for Holly's arrest. On 19 June 1415, Holly took out royal letters of protection as a member of the king's own retinue for the invasion of Normandy, yet two years later, he affronted Henry by disobeying his command to come to him and his council at Southampton, and in 1418, his estates were temporarily declared forfeit. Holly seems to have re-entered Henry's good graces, however, as he later served at sea, under Sir Hugh Courtney, patrolling the channel in defense of the coasts, something he ended up doing for several years with a force under his own command. Henry died in 1422, and Holly the Younger outlived him by 14 years, but that's getting us somewhat ahead of ourselves. To sum up this rabbit trail which took us to Dartmouth, in the periods before and even during Henry's reign, England was heavily dependent on the naval defense provided by private merchants and shipowners, who sought to protect their own interests when the king lacked a naval force that could do the job. When Henry took power and decided to put together a fleet that was up to the task, he utilized the private shipbuilding industry, in addition to the private merchant ships that were already around. Since kings of medieval England never took up the practice of keeping a standing fleet, they'd also never had the need to exercise a constant royal control over the building of ships let alone think about having shipbuilders or an industry that operated under royal purview. When Henry decided to begin building up his fleet, he took a more hands-on approach to the organization and construction of the fleet, though much of it was still accomplished through the commissioning of local shipbuilders to work on individual projects. As we'll see through this next example, this was a lucrative business for the shipbuilders and the men in administration of the projects, lucrative to the point that a steady income from royal commissions could be a great boon to a town's well-being. The town in this case was Southampton, though technically, as we'll discuss later, Burzeldin was more so the site of the shipbuilding activities. Either way, the local administrator for both Southampton and Burzeldin was an MP for Southampton, a man named William Soper. Not long into his tenure as MP for the town, Parliament heard a petition from the townspeople complaining of the great decay of their town and asking for aid. Lucky for them, Southampton's location was integral to Henry's plans of raising a fleet, although its proximity to the channel and the relative ease of access from that body of water is what had led to the great decay of which the townspeople complained. You see, early in the Hundred Years' War, Southampton had been sacked after a French, Norman, Italian, and Castilian fleet had descended on the English coast and conducted a series of raids. 
This was common throughout the course of the war, as a main strategy of the French was to focus on the disruption of merchant shipping and to attack the poorly defended English coastal towns. This very weakness is what Henry hoped to remove when, in 1414, he tasked William Soper with the construction and refitting of warships at Berzelden, a smaller town which sat on the river Hamble, near Southampton. Interestingly, Soper had some privateering experience of his own, and although at least one incident gave him the label pirate in some people's eyes, he enjoyed a much better relationship with the king than did John Hawley the Younger. In fact, on 30 October 1414, as Henry was working up his plans for the invasion of France, Soper was paid £125 for the safekeeping of the St. Clair of Spain, a prize taken at sea which was then being renovated under his supervision. It took almost two years, but Soper completed the refitting of the St. Clair, after which time it was rechristened Holy Ghost of the Tower and made part of Henry's growing war fleet. In total, Mr. Soper was paid over £1,000 for his successful refitting work, and he must have done a good job in Henry's eyes, because the work was only increased from that point. Brisledon became the site of Henry's naval proliferation, as dockyards and shipbuilding berths began to crop up in 1416. Before that, however, nearby Southampton was used as the assembly point for the fleet that Henry would use as transport for his army, the very army that would later prevail at Agincourt. So, in March 1415, Thomas, Earl of Dorset, Admiral of England, was ordered to cause all ships, barges, ballingers, and other vessels of England to be at the port of Southampton by 8 May. On 27 July, two officers were commissioned to seize all ships and other vessels of the realm and foreign parts of the portage of 20 tons and more in the port of London and take them to the port of Southampton with all possible speed to serve the king on his present voyage. The Gesta Henrici Quinti claims that the fleet which accompanied Henry to Normandy consisted of 1,500 vessels in all, though some modern historians view that number as being a bit of an overestimation. Still, even if the real number was only a third of that estimation, a 500-ship fleet in medieval England was staggering. The pure number is staggering, at least. Almost all of these ships were likely just transport vessels, nothing fancy and nothing groundbreaking. Several hundred were hired from Holland, and the rest were either hired or commandeered from Englishmen. Remarkably, for such a large fleet, Henry's voyage from Southampton over to France was largely devoid of military protection. As we've seen, work on larger warships had begun as early as 1414, but the time and money required meant that the August 1415 voyage, the one that resulted in Agincourt, was basically a transport mission protected by only four or five veritable warships at most. Even then, the warships saw no action during 1415 because the French and Genoese fleets elected to remain at home 
and allow the English to land unchallenged. Henry's army landed at Harfleur, successfully besieged the city, and proceeded on their way to Agincourt, where history was again made. The real fun from a naval perspective came in 1416, when the French attempted to retake the port city of Harfleur from the sea. Naval historian N.A.M. Roger recounts this naval battle off Harfleur in his book Safeguard of the Sea. He writes, For their campaign to retake Harfleur, the French engaged a force of 600 Genoese crossbowmen aboard eight galleys and eight carracks, which were based on the new harbor of Honfleur, across the Seine from Harfleur, and perfectly situated to blockade it. From there, they put to sea to raid the Isle of Wight and cruise off Portsmouth, while the English fleet gathered at Southampton. Finally, the Duke of Bedford got to sea, and on 15 August 1416, he met the Franco-Genoese fleet in a great battle off Harfleur. The English had only four carracks against eight, which put them at a great disadvantage. But they probably had more troops, over 7,000, two-thirds of them archers. Bedford won a complete victory, capturing three of the Genoese carracks. A fourth was wrecked trying to escape. Victory at Harfleur secured England's naval connection to Normandy, an important link in Henry's subsequent campaign to gain an even firmer grip on Norman lands. Not long before the naval battle off Harfleur, William Soper, back in Southampton, received a commission to build what was, at that point, the largest ship in England's history. It would eventually be given the name Grace A special dock was constructed near Southampton for the construction of this massive ship, though the precise location is now unknown. Most of what we do know about the construction of Grastia is preserved in the accounts of Robert Byrd, a man appointed as the ship's clerk of works. Thankfully, Byrd's records are largely intact and are preserved among the records of the exchequer at the public records office, or so they were in 1954 when Mrs. W.J. Carpenter Turney recited the fruits of her study of these records in her article, The Building of the Grastia, Valentine and Falconer at Southampton. At this point, I'm going to step away from looking at the entirety of Henry's naval concerns and focus on the story of the Grastia. It'll give us a chance to look at the details of ship construction during this period, as well as see the advantages and disadvantages inherent in the different types of ships that were common. The Grastia story is also a perfect, if somewhat depressing, illustration of the latter part of Henry's reign and the changes that occurred after his death. We know from Byrd's records that on 11 December 1416, he was appointed to survey the work of a great ship at Southampton, presumably the Grastia. Soper had finished his refitting of the Holy Ghost in January 1416, and records under his name indicate that he was tasked with the construction of a new ship in July of that year. Thus, Byrd's records are mostly financial in nature, and he was responsible for purchasing the materials, hiring the labor, 
and generally making sure that the project proceeded in a timely manner. Still, his records give us a treasure trove of information and confirm the fact that Henry paid for a good chunk of the project out of his own pocket, evidence that Henry took a greater interest in naval matters than had most kings before him. Anyway, when Byrd was appointed to be the Gracia's clerk of works, this freed up William Soper to see after his many other responsibilities elsewhere. He was constructing a naval storehouse and smithy at Southampton, while also building two storehouses at Hamble, a port which he fortified with a wooden bulwark and a spiked wooden defense pail. He was also possibly making, and certainly refitting, the Jesus, and also building a great boat for the Trinity Royal, a Ballinger called Anne. Soper was busy then. Bird, too, was busy back in Southampton, as his financial records attest. These records tell us that most of the cost of building the Gracia was covered by the royal exchequer, with the grants made in small portions throughout the period of the ship's construction. Bird's records are marvelously detailed, but for a short podcast, I imagine that the minutiae would be a bit dull. At the end of the day, Bird's entire grant from the exchequer came to 3,549 quid, 10 and 10. The king himself provided another 1,000 quid via a direct grant, so the Gracia can certainly be said to have been a royal ship. In addition to the financing provided by the king and the exchequer, Bird's records also tell us how he raised money by selling off surplus stores and provisions. Apparently this was common practice, to the point that surplus stores and even entire ships that were deemed to be surplus to requirements were sold off without much thought about whether they'd be needed at some point in the future. This was the way of doing things in medieval England, and likely this practice is a large part of the reason why a standing navy was never able to take root until into the 16th century. In a moment, we'll see how this practice played out following Henry V's death, as it likely would have played out at other points previous, after the deaths of other kings. Selling surplus stores wasn't an altogether bad practice, though. Byrd managed to raise a fair chunk of money by selling off timber that was unfit for shipbuilding, or by offloading scrap iron that would later be melted down. In Toto, Bird managed to raise just over 300 pounds by selling off scrap and surplus timber, a testament to his skill as a manager of this large project. Apart from money, much of the supply that went into building the Gracia was provided to Bird as gifts in kind. For instance, they received a substantial gift of 120 oaks from the abbots of Netley, Titchfield, and Beaulieu and the priors of Southwick and Hailing. As may be expected, most of the timber came from the royal forests. 2,603 oaks, 1,165 beeches, and seven broken oaks were provided by Thomas, Earl of Salisbury, keeper of the new forest. We'll see momentarily how the Gracia didn't turn out well in the end and part of this was likely due to the large amount of beech wood that was used in her construction. 
Beechwood is a rather poor wood for shipbuilding, and even when painted, it's easily susceptible to worm. A particularly interesting gift that was received by Bird consisted of two anchors that were given by one John Hawley of Dartmouth, a man whose name might sound familiar to you. Enough about money raising, though. The other main aspect that Bird had to deal with in organizing the construction of the great ship was just that organization of the workmen, the provisions and supplies, and other things in that vein. His accounts give us a glimpse into the payments he sent out to cover expenses and labor, including those for all port dues and all wages of carpenters, smiths, carpenters called birders, clenchers, holders, workers called joiners, caulkers, mariners, and the additional labor employed in launching, rigging, and tackling and raising of the great mast. Suffice it to say, the weekly wage bill was high. Another issue with the workers is that a fair number of them were unskilled, and some of them were even unwilling. Yes, there were experienced shipbuilders and carpenters who'd worked on ships, but the rapid expansion of shipbuilding under Henry V led to a shortage in skilled workers. We see this problem rear its head by looking to contemporary records that record several occasions where workers were arrested and imprisoned for deserting their duties after accepting their pay, or even for failing to appear in the first place. The use of these unskilled, uninterested workers goes some way toward explaining why the Grasse upon its completion in July 1418, did next to nothing after that point. The Bishop of Bangor blessed the ship in that month, and afterward a shipmaster was hired to take mariners aboard and arm the ship for use. As you may recall, Henry's fleet had won victory in 1416 at Harfleur, and from that point onward, England held a strong grip of control over the Channel. They were able to ferry forces and goods to Normandy without much trouble thereafter. Grastia had been commissioned before Harfleur, though, and by the time the ship was blessed and ready for use, it wasn't necessarily needed. It was a marvelous ship, to be sure. Over ten years later, in 1430, the Florentine captain of the galleys was taken to visit the king's great ships at anchor at Hamble, and said of the Grastia, My vidi si grande edificiox et si bello, or I never saw so large and so beautiful a construction. Sadly, although the Grastia may have been beautiful and imposing, it was fairly useless as a warship. That brings up another issue that we haven't really looked at yet in this discussion. That is, what exactly was the end aim in building a warship in medieval times, other than to have the ship float once it was all said and done? Once you were sure the ship floated, what else did you want it to be able to do for you? Obviously, today, we think of warships as being built for speed and pure firepower, and the advent of modern weaponry means that many times these warships engage one another without even being in view. The Grastia was certainly a floating fortress in its time, and this was the English approach to combating the faster, more maneuverable French and Genoese carracks. 
However, the absence of any real long-distance weaponry that was effective on a moving ship led to the reality that ship-to-ship combat in this time period was always a close-quarters affair. Many times, opposing ships simply paired off, were lashed together, and the conflict was resolved by hand-to-hand combat, after which the losing side's ship would be boarded and captured as a prize by the victorious ship. With this common naval strategy in mind, it makes sense that the English would look to build the largest ship possible. The Gracia in particular, but many of the other royal great ships built or repurposed by Henry, had huge forecastles built on the fore of the ship. These forecastles were aptly named. They were tall, fortified decks. The Gracia's was 52 feet high from which archers would fire down on the opposing vessels, and sometimes even drop lumps of iron onto the enemy ship. The Grastia, as I've already mentioned, never saw combat, but other English carracks with forecastles were in the thick of it at Harfleur, the Holy Ghost of the Tower and Trinity Royal, specifically. The English carracks themselves were actually copies of the continental style of building, but the English did what they could to beef up their ships. The Gracia is a prime example of this attempt to take the Genoese Carrick style and expand it in both size and strength. Unfortunately, the attempt was one of the first, and it shows in the end product. Gracia ended up measuring in at 66.5 meters long, over 200 feet, easily. At 15 meters wide, and an estimated displacement in excess of 2,500 tons, Gracia was similar in size to Nelson's Trafalgar flagship, Victory, and at least twice the size of the Mary Rose. Gracia was built in a clinker style, triple thick, to presumably strengthen the hull and make possible its enormous size. This triple clinker style hull was basically three planks, nailed together, and then fastened by a long iron rivet for reinforcement. Tar and moss were inserted between these plank levels for waterproofing. While this triple clinker construction technique may sound good in theory, it was simply not feasible for such a huge ship. Not to mention the fact that the shipwrights themselves were basically experimenting through their use of the style to build Grastia. We know this for a fact by virtue of something I haven't yet mentioned. That is, the decaying remains of the ship herself, sitting in the River Hamble where they've been for the past six centuries. More on that in a moment. The remains show evidence of timber that was hastily and somewhat shoddily fashioned. The construction was done in a rush, because a fair portion of the wood used was unseasoned timber. The shaping and fashioning of the plank timbers was also done rather crudely in comparison to other contemporary ships. More evidence that work was done hurriedly. I'm sure that by now you're wondering to yourself, how exactly does this story all end? I'm sure that David will fill in the gaps as concerns Henry V's numerous other exploits. But for today, it's sufficient to say that Henry died in 1422 by which time England had largely gained control of the Channel and of the Norman coast. 
if not Normandy itself. There was no French naval force to speak of, at least not one that could be pointed to by the infant King Henry VI ruling council as justification for the expensive retention of his father's fleet. Soon after Henry's death, the council sold the entire fleet, save the four largest carracks, Gracia among the remaining quartet. The ship had made her maiden and only voyage in 1420, right at the time that England had secured control of the seas. At that point, England's needs shifted from a need for warships high above the waterline, and also the Genoese and French ships themselves, to a need now for faster, smaller patrol ships to keep England's coasts secure from raids. Gracia's sole voyage left from Southampton, and involved a curious incident with the sailors who had been commissioned to man the ship for the voyage. Two specific gentlemen, William Mooring and Peter Garnies, were charged with taking muster of the voyage. In those days, muster was the means by which a record was kept of which men were part of the voyage. Once muster was taken, a man's name was on record, and any attempt to desert would then be easy to document. However, the taking of muster also documented a man's service on the voyage for the purposes of payment. So, a sailor had a vested interest in having his name on the muster roll. Try to keep these two divergent interests in mind as I recite the report of Mooring and Garnies about what happened during Gracia's only voyage. The early parts of their report recite their duty to take muster of the king's ships at Southampton, etc. The reports continue. Also, the royal commissioners aforesaid reported and certified to the king's council that William, Duke of Dartmouth, one of the quartermasters in a certain royal ship called Gracia, was reluctant to allow Peter Jordan, clerk of the same ship, to write down the names of the sailors who were on board this ship so that they might be certified before the aforesaid commissioners. But the commissioners many times requested him to let them have the role. But Duke violently seized the role of sailors' names out of the hands of the clerk and himself threatened to throw it overboard into the sea. Also, the royal commissioners aforesaid certified and reported to the king's council that after the above-mentioned keepers of the sea had set forth from the port of Southampton to the open sea, a certain William Downing of Plymouth, John French of Dartmouth, Taylor, Thomas Sidener, John Botterell, William Dutton, Walter Botterell, John Slee, John Oxen, Thomas Boyer of Tavistock, with many other in their company, rose up against the Earl of Devon, their captain, and the royal commissioners aforesaid, and William Payne, master of the same ship, and his crew, and refused to allow them to keep their station at sea, and forced them against their will to sail to St. Helens on the Isle of Wight, to wit on the feast of St. Thomas the Apostle last past, and remained there, and again refused to sail to keep the seas. What exactly drove the only sailors to man the deck of the Gracia to forcefully prevent muster 
and then forced the ship's captain to let them off on the Isle of Wight before the ship took to sea. Some have proposed the claim that these sailors knew the Grastia was poorly constructed and would falter during its first true test at sea. The report, however, contains no explicit mention of such a fear, and other contemporary accounts demonstrate the general praise for the size of the Grastia, but we really can't say with definitive assurance what caused the strange events that took place during Grastia's maiden and only voyage. We can, however, definitely follow the brief balance of the great ship's life. After Henry's navy was sold off following his death, Grastia was laid up in a mud berth, safe within the confines of the River Hamble, quite near where it was originally built. We have no indication that the ship ever set sail again. Apparently, on the same occasion that the Florentine captain of the galleys praised the beauty of the ship in 1430, he dined with William Soper on board the birthed ship. From there, the masts of the great ship were removed, and she was stripped of her equipment, left a great skeleton of Henry's naval ambitions. In 1439, the hull of the ship, all that was left by that point, was struck by lightning and burnt to the waterline. Her lower hull remains buried in the mud of the River Hamble to this very day, an apt microcosmic summation of the course of Henry's naval ambitions and the quick demise of his fleet following his death. That does it for me here today in this guest episode, and I want to again thank David for the opportunity. I didn't want to dwell too much on myself or my own podcast in the intro today, but if you like what you've heard, then please consider joining me and the crew of the Maritime History Podcast. The best way to do that is by going to the website MaritimeHistoryPodcast.com. Even though we've only gotten through ancient maritime history thus far in our story, we are going to continue progressing and looking at maritime history of civilizations and cultures throughout time. It would be great to see our podcast expand, and I think that today's episode is pretty representative of what you can expect on a regular basis with us. As maybe a slight motivation to visit the website, I'll put up some pictures and maps to supplement our discussion today. I'm not sure if David will want to mess around with including them on the History of England website, but even if he decides to do so, I'll make sure to put the same things on my website as well. I'll go ahead and wrap it up with that, ladies and gentlemen. Thanks for listening, and I hope to see you in the near future over at the Maritime History Podcast.